Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. So this time on HashiCast, we've got Paul Dix, who's the CTO and co-founder of InfluxDB. He's also the series editor of the data and analytics category for Addison Wellesley Books and the author of Service-Oriented Design with Rails. So if anybody doesn't know about InfluxDB, it's an open source time series database and it's, it's built for storing metrics and events and integrates with a whole number of different sources such as console and Kubernetes and Docker. And today, hopefully, we're going to dive a little bit into InfluxDB, about what it is and what you can use it for, but also get the lowdown on why monitoring and metrics and events are essential for your application. So welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Now, I only give you a short intro. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm a developer by training. Um, uh, I've been in the industry, uh, God, since the late 90s. Um, I got a CS degree from Columbia where I focused on machine learning and search and information retrieval and database systems. Um, and uh, for the last five years, I've been building, building this company, uh, which initially started out as uh, a SaaS product for doing real-time metrics and monitoring. Uh, and then we kind of switched over to focusing on just the infrastructure piece and delivering that as, as open source as InfluxDB and the other projects later. That's awesome. And I always like to ask this question because I'm genuinely interested. How did you get into tech? What made you want to do computer science? Is it something you've always been interested in or? Yeah. So I think when I was in third grade for my birthday, my grandmother gave me a Commodore 64C as my birthday present. Uh, and back in those days when you got a computer as a birthday present, it actually came with books. And some of the books were like how to use the stupid thing. But another one of the books was like how to write basic code. Um, Commodore Basic, yeah, I remember that book. Yeah, so I was just like, I, like, I didn't know what it was. Like I, I played my Atari 2600 at that point. <laughs> um, so I started playing around with it and I just thought, oh wow, this is awesome. Like what can I make this thing do? Like what will it do? Uh, and then later, like in fourth grade, uh, I actually made a new friend whose uh, dad was actually a computer programmer. And at that point, I had the realization, I was like, wait a second, so people will pay you to do this? <laughs> so ever since then, I always knew like I wanted to, you know, I wanted to work uh, as a developer, like building things and stuff like that. And I took a pretty circuitous route. Uh, I didn't go to college right away out of high school. Um, and I kind of got into tech first, and then I ended up actually going back to school uh, in 2005. It was funny, I actually, I quit my job as a senior R&D engineer at McAfee to go get my CS degree, and my friends you know, gave me grief because they were just like, you know you're quitting the job to go get the degree that people get so that they can get the job that you just quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and throughout the career, I mean, you you must have built quite a few quite a few systems. I mean, plenty of systems, right? And and I guess that's led you to your recent work in in metrics with metrics and analytics. Yeah. In your own words, like why why do you think augmenting applications with metrics is so important? 
So yeah, so metrics and analytics is actually only part of what we do. Um, really, you know, what we're building, I would say, is the focus is on time series as kind of an underlying abstraction for working with a specific kind of data, time series data, which in my mind, it's metrics, which is uh, samples collected at fixed intervals of time, right? Once a minute, you're saying, you know, what your average response time was or a histogram of your response time or the count of something or a sample from your CPU utilization. Um, or you're talking about uh, events, which are basically a regular time series. That could be trades in a stock market. It could be individual requests to an API. It could be a container, you know, getting turned on or getting shut down, uh, any of that kind of stuff. Um, so the like academically, uh, I was, I was interested in, I mean, my primary focus like was machine learning and artificial intelligence, but I also had another focus on search and information retrieval, that kind of stuff. So I was always kind of interested in database systems and how people get information. And I actually uh, did an internship at Google in 2007, where I built a, a custom search application internally. Um, so fast forward a little bit to 2011, I worked for a fintech startup, it was like 2010, 2011. I worked for a fintech startup uh, where we wanted to build a solution that could track uh, the financial market data across 200,000 different like financial instruments, like symbols. Um, and uh, finance has worked with time series data for a very long time and there have been closed source solutions and you know custom built from the ground up solutions uh, in, the, in those areas, but usually they focused on having, say, a few dozen unique time series that are just very, very high velocity, right? Could be hundreds of thousands of events in a second. Uh, what we were doing in 2010, 2011 was very different in terms of what the data looked like. We were talking about hundreds of thousands of time series with events that were, with data that was much more sparse. So regular once every 10 second samples, but also event data mixed in as well. Um, so when, you know, when, when uh, I started this company, I had to again build like a time series solution, but this time for uh, metrics, like server metrics and application metrics and stuff like that. And I saw that there was a lot of similarity between the two. Like there was, despite the fact there are two totally different applications, the underlying abstraction was time series and it was kind of the same. I started seeing that in sensor data as well. Um, as far as like why it's important to track metrics and stuff in your application, uh, I mean, really that's all about observability, right? Like it's impossible to debug something or to know whether or not you're actually improving something in terms of performance unless you're observing it over time. Uh, so obviously building metrics into your system from, from day one gives you the tools and the visibility you need to be able to track it and see what's going on. And I'm, I'm a big fan uh, of the approach, but maybe there's some listeners out there who don't really know so much about sort of metrics and time series. And, and we're going to dig into sort of influx and time series data spaces in a bit, but just on the topic of metrics. So you, you kind of have things like counts and, and time spans and, and gauges. Could you maybe sort of explain where and when you would use each of those different types and, and throughout your application code? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it, it depends on what metric system you're talking about, right? Like, 
uh, StatsD, which is tied to Graphite, has a certain kind of system. Prometheus has a certain kind of system, which I think is a little bit more advanced and more modern. Uh, and we're we like our goals. We kind of like work with whatever, however you want to do it like we can store the un raw underlying event stream so you can induce whatever kind of time series you want from that but the basic idea is you have counters which are generally just increasing counters that are counting things so in in systems you can think of this as like think of like network bytes in on an interface this is just a number that keeps going up right and occasionally it'll get reset if you restart a server or if it's like in a process if you're counting number of requests to an api right you just you have a counter internally that counts that and then you know periodically you sample what the count is and what you see over time is it growing and if you take the you know the rate of change of that you, the derivative of that you can see what the count is over a specific interval of time so how many requests did i get to an api over the, over a minute of time or how 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 many bytes came in through the network interface over some period of time so the other the other kind is basically something called a gauge. Uh, so counters are strictly increasing over time, except for when they get reset to zero. Uh, gauges is basically just a measurement that happens, and it can go up or down or whatever. It's not necessarily increasing or decreasing, and it can also be negative. Um, so that's basically just it's something that you sample periodically, right? So like CPU utilization would be something that would be kind of like a gauge, right? Um, uh, then there are summary distributions, right? So in Prometheus, for example, you have histograms and then you have summary summaries. So with histograms, basically, uh, you take, you basically bucket things into certain intervals. So the, the best way to think about this is like requests into an API. If you want to summarize what the response time to an API looked like over a 10 minute window of time, one way to do it is basically just to give somebody an average, right? You give them a single number, which is an average of the response time over that 10 minute window. The problem is that doesn't really tell you anything about how the experience was for the user or how good the thing is. So a lot of times what people will do is they'll fall back to, okay, we'll take like min, max, average, and some percentiles, right? Like 90th, 95th, 99th. But even then, like it doesn't really give you the level of granularity that you really want, and you can't combine those over periods of time. So enter the histogram as a type. You essentially just say, okay, we're gonna bucket this, and say, you know, for our histogram, what we care about is like zero to, zero to like a second, and then everything above a second is like obviously like that's horrible and we want to avoid that, right? Even a second is like too long. But we're going to slice it up into like 10 different buckets. Uh, and what you do is for every request, you just add have a count for, you know, request that was in that bucket. So then what you can see is in this 10 minute period of time, one, how many requests did I get, but how many of them fell into which category, right? How quickly they responded. So you can actually get a sense for, oh, like, Maybe the average response time was 100 milliseconds, which looks great on paper, but then you see like there are a bunch of requests that for some reason were way out on the outer edge that took way too long to, to get a response. Right. Uh, so the histogram is really useful for that. And the, the summary type is basically one where you don't have those fixed buckets. Those can change over time. And I guess when you start dealing with those kind of bits and pieces of data, then like a standard SQL database or a document store won't cut it. And so let, let's talk a little bit about InfluxDB because 
Some of the listeners may not really understand the, the benefits of working with a time series database. What does a time series database really bring to the table when we're dealing with data like this over a conventional sort of SQL database? Yeah, so there, there are a number of things they can do. Um, the, one of the first and most obvious things is compression, right? You're dealing with a lot of data over time. Uh, with metrics data, it is trivial to get to a point where you're collecting a billion data points per day, right? So the naive way to put that in a SQL database is you write a record for every single data point. If you're writing a billion records per day into a SQL database, life is going to be very sad for you. Um, you run out of space. Yeah. So, so compression is really important, right? Like, you know, if you just think about it, like, a, a you know, a, a float 64 value and a timestamp is going to be 16 bytes without any other metadata that describe what the thing is, right? Um, so if you have good compression, you can actually compress that down to, you know, like one byte, 1.1, 1.3 bytes per value. So that kind of difference is huge when you're talking about a billion values per day. Um, and even like if you're running, you know, 20 servers and you're sampling once every 10 seconds, Generally speaking, it's very common for people to have 200 to 1,000 measurements per server that they pull in for every server in their infrastructure. So that, that adds up really quickly. And does the compression change with time? So is, is like historic data more deeply compressed? So you lose precision, but... Yeah, so, so compression just by itself is one thing. So with Influx, unlike other time series databases, we actually support more than just like a float 64. Um, value type. We support Flow64, Int64, uh, Booleans, uh, UN64, and Strings. So we we pick compression depending on what data is and also what the shape of the data is. So we kind of optimize the compression based on that. Um, you'll find this in columnar databases, but you won't find it in SQL databases. And databases like Cassandra just use generalized compression like Snappy or LCW, right? Um, so Compression is one piece. Write throughput is another one that's very important. Um, right? Uh, with time series data, it's kind of a weird use case because you don't really update time series data and you don't really deal with contention. Right? In a normal database, there's a bunch of stuff that is in there to deal with the fact that updates are a frequent thing and they're expected and you could potentially have you know two writers at the same time trying to update a record. You just don't have that in time series data. So there are a bunch of shortcuts you can take to optimize your throughput, to get much better write throughput on a time series database than you would get in a SQL database. Because you like all of that machinery in there that's dealing with the fact that you need a transactional database with time series data, you just don't need it because, yeah, it's, it's mostly an append-only workload unless you're doing historical backfills. Um, so there's that. The other piece is the, the piece that you hinted at, which is basically downsampling or... Um, uh, summarizations or or um, that kind of thing. So basically, it's it's very common in the time series use case to have high precision data that you keep around for a short period of time, like say seven days, right? So say you have once every ten second samples, you keep that high precision data around for seven days, and then you downsample it to say ten minute summarizations, right? Uh, 10 minute downsamples of those things. And they, you, you can pick, there are many different ways to downsample the data depending on what it is, right? It could be a mean, it could be a combination of things, it could be a histogram, it could just be a single individual sample that you select randomly. But 
generally speaking, you know, if you're talking 10 seconds, one, once every 10 seconds to, you know, and every 10 minutes, you're talking about a serious reduction in the amount of data you keep around. So the 10 minute samples you keep around for say three months or six months or whatever. And then you could go even further to say like, we're going to have one hour summaries. So in, a, in most databases, if you want to do that kind of thing, you have to write a bunch of application level code to do it. You have to write application level code to compute those summaries, to write the data in, and then you have to write application level code to query the samples, right? Um, so different time series databases provide this to varying degrees, some not at all, some of them kind of. Um, we're kind of in the middle ground. It's our goal to actually have it be a totally seamless thing that people can set up. Right now, there are a couple of different tools in the stack that you can use to downsample your data. And then when you query it, you specify, hey, I want, the, I want this area of data that's like my medium precision, or this area that's my low precision data. Um, so there's that. And then finally, like the, the, the last piece within the database itself, like the database proper, is basically like how you query the data, right? SQL is primarily based on querying a bunch of sets and a bunch of set theory stuff and relational algebra. I think time series data, most of the time when you're working with it, you want to work with it like it's a matrix of data, right? And you want you want to work with it like that. And there, yes, you can represent a lot of these query concepts in SQL, and our current query language looks kind of like SQL. Um, but our new query language is actually very, very different. And the goal is to make, to enable like query functionality that would be very, very hard to represent in SQL, but do it succinctly and in a way that's readable and understandable to the developers who, you know, have to look at your queries. That's, that's really awesome. And Nick, I don't know about you, but that made my understanding of time series database and InfluxDB really clear, uh, which is pretty awesome. 100% clearer. So, uh, Paul, when I'm like out at conferences and I talk to people in, you know, especially in like the, uh, the operation space and infrastructure space, uh, they usually talk about InfluxDB and Prometheus somewhat together and then they compare them and, and there's all these like blog posts and discussions on them. So, uh, how does Influx compare with something like Prometheus? And I'm sure you get this question pretty, like pretty often, pretty common question for you. Yeah, absolutely. So Prometheus is actually a couple of different things, right? There's the actual server implementation, which has a time series database as part of it. But really, the Prometheus people, the Prometheus developers think of Prometheus as a monitoring system, right? Uh, one, it is based on the, it's entirely built around the concept of pull technology. So essentially, what Prometheus will do is it will go out and connect to targets, and it will scrape them which is it will pull, it will connect to them like it's an HTTP endpoint, it hits it, uh, it scrapes the metrics, pulls them in, and then you can monitor, it stores them in its local uh, time series data store and it can monitor them and transform them. And then you can query Prometheus directly from that. Um, so that's pull. Pull works really, really well for metrics, for things that are not ephemeral, right? So don't, for serverless, I don't know. It's not. It's <laughs> you're going to have problems. But for and and even for like container for containers that are short lived, you're going to have problems. But for other things like as long as Prometheus it goes into the service discovery and Prometheus can discover it, it'll go scrape it, pull the data in. Um, so Influx obviously is a time series database. 
uh, it's based on push, right? So you push the data to, to Influx as you would like a normal database. Um, however, uh, we also have support for the Prometheus exposition format. So I guess Prometheus is two things. It's the server implementation, but it's also this metrics format that they've defined uh, that's quickly becoming a, an industry standard. And we wanted to add support for that. So our data collection agent, Telegraph, can actually scrape Prometheus targets and send the data to Influx. Our monitoring agent, Capacitor, can scrape Prometheus uh, targets and either transform the data or monitor the data or send it to Influx. Um, so our goal, like our goal over time, like over the course of this year, is to build more and more support for the Prometheus standards into our platform as a whole so that it pairs well with Prometheus. So one of the design principles for Prometheus is that it's a monitoring server. So what you want is you want, you want to be able to reason about its failure modes really easily. And because of that, it's designed to be a single server only that runs on its own. And generally, it's designed to be ephemeral. Like, you, you're not supposed to care if the thing, like, if you have a Prometheus operator in your Kubernetes cluster and, like, the Prometheus server goes down, you're not supposed to care if the operator just spins a new one up and you start over fresh from the data, right? You shouldn't have to have a stateful set to run a Prometheus server. Um, so, but at the same time, so, which is great for a monitoring system, it's not great if you want to keep your data around and care about like long-term trends and stuff like that. So our goal over the course of this year is to build more and more support for the Prometheus metrics format into the platform, but also to add support for uh, PromQL, which is the Prometheus query language. Um, so that ideally, people will be able to use Promethei across their infrastructure and pair that up with an Influx deployment so that they could do some things with Influx, some things with Prometheus, and ideally everything will kind of work well together. So on some level, like, yes, the projects are directly competitive, but at the same time, I think there is, is, there's a lot of room to have them be complementary to each other and work well together. That's pretty awesome. It's like the right tool for the right job. You choose, you get the choices and you can use both in conjunction, which is like a dream for an operator. Um, so one of the other things that I'm sure we touched on it earlier at, when we introduced some of the time series stuff, uh, but could you kind of define and talk about the differences between event logging and, and just metric storage in general? What's the difference between uh, just like the the way they're implemented uh, as uh, in terms of like the way these systems are implemented in terms of architecture and design uh, and what's just the basic difference between them and where does it make sense to use InfluxDB? Sure. So, I mean, the core difference between metrics and events is a metric. Metrics are what I call regular time series, which is uh, a regular time series is a time series in which you have samples collected at fixed intervals, right? Once every 10 seconds, once a minute, once every five minutes, whatever it is. Um, and the, and the time, a time series is essentially just uh, an ordered list of time value tuples, right? So you, you, it's in the value in, in when people think of metrics, they mostly think of float 64 values and in N64 timestamp, an epic, right? Um, with events, events are, in my mind, events are irregular time series, which is basically, it's still a time series because you generally care about this data over time. But 
they can happen at any frequency, right? So you could have, you know, 2000 happen in this second, none in the next second, and two in the next second after that, right? Now, the thing about uh, irregular time series is you can actually induce a regular time series on the fly from an irregular one, right? So for example, if you log the response time uh, to uh, an API request every single time the API is hit, that is an event stream, right? Because that's events which are somebody hitting the API and you're logging the response time. Then if you say, look at the events for the last hour and tell me in 10 second intervals what the average response time was, you can compute that from the raw underlying event stream, but then what you get as a result is a regular time series that looks like a metric, right? Um, the, the other thing I think that is common in events that you don't see at all in time in metrics is it's common for people to have non non like float 64 type data in the events. Right. So, you know, if you think about like user analytics, uh, people track, you know, what like browser you have or they talk track a user ID or they, you know, in, in network stuff, it could be source IP, destination IP. Now you can represent that all as time series. Um, but, in event, in event streams, what you get into is this issue of high cardinality, right? So with time series, with metrics, basically, like most people, when they think about metrics, they think in terms of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or maybe the low millions in terms of the number of unique metrics, right? So if you're doing server monitoring and you have a thousand servers and you're collecting a hundred different metrics from each servers, you have, you know, 100,000 time series. Whereas if you look at, say, network monitoring and you are tracking traffic from any potential user or any potential uh, source across the internet, you have source IP, destination IP, and you can represent that as a time series, but the number of source IP, destination IP combinations quickly goes into the hundreds of millions or billions, or basically like it's it's essentially like a a, a very large set. So usually when you're building out like systems for time series versus systems for event streams, for event streams, you have to figure out clever ways of not indexing those pieces of data that lead to super high cardinality, but also figure out a way to query query them effectively. Like it's easy to write a bunch of high cardinality data in. The hard part is querying it back out in some way that's actually performant, right? So I think with event-driven systems, that that becomes the challenge. Whereas like time series systems, it's kind of like, or metrics, sorry, metric systems, it's generally bounded in this concept that, oh, we're not really going to have to deal with more than, you know, a few million time series or metrics rather. So when we're talking about events in terms of a time series database, we're not talking about an event in terms of like a message, which may be sitting on a message queue. So influx is not something like Kafka. It's, it's, purely about uh, an action that's happened on a system and be being able to, to kind of normalize that into a queryable source. Yeah, so, so Influx is not like Kafka in that sense. I mean, you could actually use Influx as a message queue. I wouldn't recommend it. But, you know, you like uh, when you write data in, 
you could write a message in like, say your, your measurement name is like Q1, right? Uh, and then the field would just be whatever the message is. It could be, you know, cause we support strings. You could actually write like a JSON blob in there or whatever. Um, and the writer could write the timestamp in. And then when you query it, if you, as long as you query, like based on whatever that timestamp is or last timestamp seen, you could treat it just like a queue, like a durable queue. Um, that's not really what it's designed for. So like I said, I wouldn't recommend it. On a single InfluxDB server, you can actually guarantee ordering and that's fine. Uh, within our clustered setup, we don't guarantee to order because the, the expectation is that everything is eventually consistent and that the data is constantly flowing and what people care about is you know the data in aggregate and they're always looking at it again and again yeah i, th I think I, I can guarantee you people are still using it as kafka <laughs> i can guarantee you that so uh switching gears a little bit paul uh, so at hashicorp we have the hashi tag which is uh, terraform packer console well, each tool is designed for a specific purpose to solve a specific problem People might use it to build a platform, you know, where they can just push and and, and things starts build things starts building and and they deploy it to scale. So if someone wants to build a platform uh, for collecting, storing, graphing, and alerting uh, using you know the rest of the tools that Influx provides, uh, so where do you see like uh, Chronograph and Capacitor and Telegraph uh, used? And could you tell us more about this the the tick stack that that's what you call it? I think. Yeah, sure. So actually, that was one of the other things I didn't cover in, in like why a time series database versus you know just a general purpose database that you can use. And one of the other compelling reasons I think is because of all the stuff that's actually not in the database itself. It's the other tools that you want to build around it. And the thing is, because of the way Influx is designed, because we say like this is what the schema looks like, this is what the data looks like, you can build other tools around it, and they kind of hook in together seamlessly. So for example, so we started off with the database as the first project. Uh, but over the first like six months the database was out, I saw how people were using it and I saw the, the kind of like common problems that they had to solve. Uh, so when I went and raised the Series A for the company, the pitch that I gave was not, hey, we're building a database. It's actually, hey, we're building this entire platform for time series data because we see these other problems, right? So one of them is collection. How do you collect the data and get it in the database? So our collector is Telegraph. Uh, it's MIT licensed. Um, and it has a bunch of different plugins for collecting data and shipping it out actually to either Influx, but actually to a bunch of other places as well, including competitors. We didn't limit uh, Telegraph in the sense that it could only be used with Influx. You can use it with other systems as well, because we wanted to build like a vibrant community around that project. Uh, separate from Influx itself. Um, and that was to try and get as many people as possible contributing plugins to the project, which is why you know you can use it with us or with anybody. Um, so collecting the data is one thing, right? So because of that, what that means is like, if, say you wanted a general purpose database as your time series database, you would actually have to write the collector yourself to then write the data into your database. Or you'd have to write a translation layer for a collector that exists like collectee or telegraph or any one of these things and then translate it over um so the other pieces are visualization um 
one project that's very, very popular for that with Influx is Grafana, which is focused on, you know, time series visualization. We have our own project called Chronograph, which you can use for dashboarding. But there are a bunch of other things within Chronograph that are just outside the focus area of Grafana, which is like purely a dashboarding tool. Chronograph has stuff for administration of the stack. It also has uh, an editor for basically these scripts that you can write that get injected to our processing and monitoring agent, which is Capacitor, right? So those are the like the four different areas of like time series data, right? Collection, storage, visualization, uh, and processing and monitoring the data. Uh, so for Capacitor, we created a lightweight scripting language called TickScript, uh, where you can define all sorts of like custom behavior in terms of how the data is processed, uh, certain things you want to look out for and maybe alert on or transform the data as it goes through the system. So uh, talking about like transforming the data as it goes through the system, I'm really interested in anomaly detection. And we build our systems as engineers, we test them, we put, put them out in production. Uh, but building distributed systems is usually you know, quite hard and, and monitoring them is a challenge as well. So how does Capacitor help monitor these post-production workloads? Yeah, so I mean, using TickScript, you can look for a bunch of you know common cases. Like uh, you can look for you know something not reporting, which we call like a dead man switch. Um, you can look for you know significant changes in the ro rolling average or you know specific thresholds. Um, but it also has a system called user defined functions where you can plug in totally custom code. So we have examples for how to do it in Go and Python. Uh, and using that, you can kind of like, basically the idea is you have a long running process that can communicate uh, over a socket via protobuf uh, and capacitor as the agent will get all the data that it needs from InfluxDB and send the data that match your filter down to your long running process where you can do any sort of custom work and then output it back to capacitor, which will then route it back to InfluxDB or route it to a notification service or any other sort of thing. So what you can have in your process in your user-defined function is as complex as you want it to be. So we have an example where uh, we hooked it up, up with uh, TensorFlow to do like anomaly detection kind of stuff. Uh, but you could, we wanted to make it so it was totally pluggable because we knew that like we wouldn't be able to design for every possible use case. And with machine learning, it's actually very, very specific to what you're doing. It, like it's, I would say it's impossible to make something that's completely generalizable. Uh, if you can, then go play the stock market. <laughs> if you can, if you, if you can uh, do totally generalizable anomaly detection on random time series, then those are the time series you want to work with is stock. That, that's awesome. Uh, so going through the documentation, as you mentioned as well, machine learning, uh, which is a common theme, it seems, nowadays. Uh, so could I use a capacitor to, you know, use to, to, and, and use machine learning to build an auto-scaling uh, auto -scaling policy for my application so it can kind of look through the traffic, like traditional traffic, and then automatically build out like the scaling parameters? And I, could I use that uh, and then, you know, actually use that as an input to the system and scale my application with the, with the, with the load that's, that's coming in? Yeah, yeah, you can absolutely do that. Uh, so we have a, an example. We added support uh, to Capacitor a little while ago, probably sometime last, early last year, um, to be able to uh, auto scale Kubernetes based on 
any kind of metric in the system or any kind of behavior, if you pair it up with UDFs, any kind of like behavior you want to track. So, you know, at the time, like Kubernetes would only scale based on CPU utilization or memory. You really couldn't scale based on any other thing. And like one of the most common things to scale, like if you have a worker pool, they're reading from a queue, you scale the worker pool based on the depth of the queue, right? Like no brainer. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's an easy example. But if you had more complex stuff, you could certainly loop that in. And like I said, it already has the integration touch point, at least with, we added Kubernetes, Kubernetes we have today. I think we had support for Docker Swarm probably like last fall. Um, That's cool. So, That's awesome. Yeah. So I could, I could build an awesome autoscale function, which is looking at my historic traffic data, and it knows that I'm going to be hella busy around Black Friday and could potentially autoscale my cluster without me even raising a finger to a keyboard. Yes, but I'm guessing if you're at one of those companies that cares about Black Friday, people are already on staff and doing that anyway. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, uh, so looking through the future a little bit, Paul. So, what's next for InfluxDB? Um, I, I hear there's a big version two release that's coming up. So, t talk us through that, and talk us through like what do you what do you see? Uh, you know, the future of metrics and events in the next you know ten ten so years. Um, yeah, so what's next for us is, I mean, the biggest thing that I've been talking about now for probably since November uh, is our new query language that we're building out. Um, the idea, so right now we have two languages to work with the stack. There's InfluxQL, which is our query language that looks kind of like SQL. And there's TickScript, which is what you use to work with Capacitor. For 2.0, what I want to do is unify, one, all the products into a, just a single unified platform where there's an API that you work with, and the API could be writing data, querying data, uh, defining collection rules and collection targets, uh, defining user dashboards, uh, defining background processing uh, rules, which are either stream processing or run on a schedule periodically, batch style, um, and within all of that, a single language. So that's the API side of things. And then without, within all of that, a single language to work with the platform. So our new language is right now it's called IFQL. Um, we're, we're debating names right now internally. Uh, but it looks very functional in nature. Um, and this is kind of like, this is a vision I've had for the language probably since the fall of 2014. Uh, I wanted to do a functional language then, but I was a little too afraid to do it. Um, now I feel like we can do the functional language while still supporting the older SQL style language that, that a lot of people still love. Um, so basically like building all those pieces, getting the language together, adding as much functionality as possible. The new language already has, there are already tons of things you can do in the new language that you just could not do in the old one. And our goal is to really keep expanding that over time. Um, one of the things we did that we actually just announced last week or the week, week before I'm excited about is um, uh, Apache Arrow. Uh, we had, we're 2.0 will kind of have default support for Apache Arrow is like a data interchange format. So Apache Arrow is essentially an in-memory format for columnar storage. Uh, if you look at the big data projects like Spark or Dremio um, or Hadoop, like they all can work with this data. You can work with it in Pandas. Um, so we wanted to add support for that. Uh, and we actually, 
started development of the Go implementation of Arrow, and actually we contributed that back to the Apache Software Foundation, and they we announced it just like last week or the week before the donation to the ASF. So, and we're going to be driving for the development of the official Apache Arrow Go implementation, and that's going to be a first-class citizen in our 2.0 efforts. Awesome. And it always pleases me to hear of another company using a language dear to my heart, which is Go. That's yeah. super awesome. I, I look forward for the new the new features that are coming up. I, I would ask the listeners to check out InflexDB as well. Uh, so Paul, it was really great having you uh, on HashiCast. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. It was incredible, super interesting. I learned a lot. Nick learned a lot. I learned a bunch. It was super interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a guys. final question for you. This is going to be a less serious question and it's not related to InflexDB in any way. Uh, so if you were to compare yourself to something that we all use every day in our everyday lives, like a pen or a coffee machine, what would that be and why? These are the hardest questions. I, I've, I've never given thought to a question like this ever. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it going to be like a device or appliance of some kind or it could, it, it, <laughs> it could be anything. I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely stuck on answering that question myself and yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know what I would be. God, I'm starting to feel some existential dread here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, I'll, I'll go first. I'll go first. So Nick, Nick, how about you go no, first? No, I don't go first. I've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be... I'd, I'd be a, a stress shock. I don't know. This like it's the dumbest question ever. Who wrote this? <laughs> you did, Nick. <laughs> oh, it's it's been absolutely fantastic. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> You've been listening to Hashicast with your hosts, Nick and Mishra. Today's guest has been Paul Dix from Influx TV. Be sure to tune in next time.